Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. M-S-W Media. Donald Trump is on tape, and it sure looks like he's trying to commit fraud. What legal liability does he have? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend, Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, I, our last podcast, we were talking about uh, you know criminal liability for Trump and you know, will there be an investigation? Will there be a prosecution? How should DOJ handle it? And literally, we have a whole new crime to talk about. Uh, and it's not even a week later. I know. <laughs> well, and it was just so, uh, you know, I wake up every morning and, and I, I, I hate to say that I try to see well, what crazy happened in the middle of the night. You know, was he in the bathroom on his phone tweeting at us some madness? And I did see the tweet about the Secretary of State in Georgia. And then at noon, I mean, it was it was just so dramatic where the Secretary of State was like, as a matter of fact, everything he has tweeted about me is absolutely incorrect. And I have the receipts. Well, yeah, I, he said something vague, like the truth will come out or something. Yeah. First. He, yeah. First. he Yes. First, he, he, te- he teased us. The truth will come out. And then, boom, uh, I guess. They decided there's no better time than now. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad that they didn't let, you know, string us along, that they were swift with it. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was when Bogoyevich was uh, taken into custody. You know, one of the things that they had said was they had they had to move quickly because the, because they there was a crime in process and it was going to get worse that they that he was going to give Obama's seat to somebody in exchange, you know, a quid pro quo kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, but I mean, everything on this. T- I, I, by the way, I did listen to the whole thing. Did you listen to the entire recording? I did not. I listened to poor. I, wa- I, I had a transcript of the whole thing, which I read, which is painful to read. And then I listened to parts <laughs> of it. But I yeah. got to tell you, it's painful. to. It was even more painful to listen to than it was to read. Well, can I make a, uh, a suggestion? Uh, I don't know if you uh, if you're familiar with Hal Sparks. He's a comedian and commentator, and he does a lot of things live 
and basically like mystery science 3000s it like you know where he does commentary oh. in real time so he jumped on last night and i was so excited because it, it is the best way so if you get a chance like in the background you can hear how breaking down the audio so you can kind of hear it and his commentary and it's fantastic wow that 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 makes it it's got to make it more more interesting to listen to i have to tell you I was listening to parts of it, and then you start forwarding through it because it's like, okay, I've heard this conspiracy theory before. It's like, oh my god, he never he doesn't he doesn't shut up ever. It just keeps going on and on and on. Yeah, he he. Uh, it is. Uh, it, you're right. If I was just to listen to it on my own, I would not be able to get through it because he repeats himself, and and uh, and then I don't know if you heard this part where he tells uh, the attorney, uh, Raffenberger's attorney, he tells him. Uh, yeah, I hear you're very difficult. Um, I, I'm assuming you're a good lawyer, but you, I really do like your last name, which is yeah. German. It's just weird. He's an interesting character, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's bizarre, and uh, you know, Trump is somebody who you know I in my line of work, both when I was a prosecutor and now as a as a lawyer uh, in private practice, you know, I run into all sorts of bizarre individuals. You know, we would have when I was a prosecutor, people call. Uh, the the hotline essentially, you know, if you were the uh, prosecutor on call, you get all these calls from bizarre individuals who have conspiracy theories, and you know, nowadays sometimes they have a clients and they'll they'll have me talk to whatever you know a, a bizarre person has theories and, and claims. It almost Trump has a, a kind of had this air of that kind of person. I mean, it's the president of the United States. He's got all these intelligence services and you know, staff and military and all this stuff. And here he is like repeating a bunch of stuff. He sounds like your know-it-all uncle, you know, that sort of guy. And I thought Mark Hamill uh, was, had a very funny tweet that it was, it was like an extra episode of the Sopranos. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he really, it just, it, it sounds smarmy. uh, And it, it really, it's it's a rambling mess as well. I mean, it, it, on so many levels, this is a disaster. You know, and I have to say it was interesting because before this, of course, the story was these Republican uh, Congress people and senators who were trying to object to the electoral votes in a, you know, it's like a futile attempt, but a disturbing one. And I think this, this it was a stark you know, it, it kind of put out, you know, a lot of times people don't want to see the sausage being made. Here is Donald Trump in his glory. You know, here is the, the emperor has no clothes. This is what you are supporting. Somebody who is so desperate to remain in power, he'll do just about anything. It really is. And yet there's a sense of, of course, I mean, there's not, <laughs> there's not, there's not an element really of surprise, is there? And it does make you wonder how many of these other phone calls he has put into the other states that are on the line for him or he imagines that they are, whether it's uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, you know, it's just it boggles the mind, Uh, which was so funny. You responded to somebody. Was it Schaefer, David Schaefer, about how he said it's mind boggling that they would record this. And I think you took him to task. I'm like, that's the part that bothers you, that they recorded it, not that the president of the United States was trying to coerce and and ask for more votes to be turned his way. Yeah. I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, it's interesting, been interesting to see the defense of this. I mean, there's really, when you listen to the call, there's no defense to it. It reminds me a little bit of the Ukraine uh, call where they're like, Oh, it was a perfect call or whatever. 
I mean, this is, is even worse. I mean, in just terms of, it was so much, we have the full audio and it's very explicit and it goes on and on. There's some very hard to explain language there uh, for somebody trying to defend Trump. And so they try to shift the whole thing to be like, well, this guy recorded it and put it out there. I mean, there was one guy online who said, well, this is not, you know, it violates the man code as if some, I don't understand what being a man has to do when you're being, essentially you're a victim of a crime. You record uh, the person trying to defraud you or, you know, or it should try to, I would say coerce you, extort you into committing fraud. And, you know, you're the, you're the, the, the problem. It's almost like it's this blame the victim. Yeah, really, because I do view the Secretary of State here as a bit as a victim in all of this. Um, you know, somebody who is essentially being pressured and bullied by Trump into doing something that's unlawful. I I agree, but it's also, I mean, it's something that it's it's a crime against voters. That you know, I'm so tired of this idea that that it's being stolen. That that and and another thing that came up in your thread was about we you know these aren't conservatives. These are fascists who want to take away the freedoms of voters because there were 80 million voters that did choose Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to be their their next executives, their president and vice president. And it's infuriating. Well, I will tell you, you know, one thing I've struggled with over the last couple of years is the term to use to, to describe Trump supporters, because they'll use this term conservative, but there's really nothing conservative about a lot of the things that they're proposing. I mean, there's nothing conservative about saying that we're going to have the federal government toss aside all the results of these elections that have been conducted by the states and certified by them and upheld by the courts. I mean, there's nothing, it's it's a very radical, anti-democratic, authoritarian move. It has absolutely nothing, it's not conservative, it's not American, really, it's un-American. And so, you know, I have been using the term right-wing or Trump ally or things like that, because I just find for so much of this stuff that I, I do not think it is properly called conservative. And it's a, it bothers me that these, these folks are using the term conservative because there's nothing conservative about it. Well, this is, this goes to the language and it was great that one of your uh, followers had tweeted out a part of Lincoln's uh, Cooper's union address, because I love that speech. Um, where he breaks down what, you know, between him and, and Douglas Stevens, without Douglas Stevens being there, but what the interpretation of what the founding fathers intended when it came to slavery. But, you know, beyond that, uh, it is the uh, cons- what we consider conservatives, the GOP, the right wing, uh, you know, the far right, have been masterful when it comes to language. And somehow they've dominated the words freedom, liberty, justice, when really, you know, that's what Democrats have been trying to fight for when it comes to access to health care and education, you know, mobility, you know, as far as being able to earn an income. Uh, and that's where moving in the path of freedom and equality is really about. And I and I and I'm I'm really incensed when the words we the people are somehow the entire domain of Republicans. It is not. Anyway, I'm, I'm a little fired up today. You Bernard. are. You are. <laughs> I will say that if there's one piece of language that I uh, think needs to be reclaimed is it's being American. You know, a lot of times Republicans are like, oh, we're the real Americans. So that I think it's got some racial overtone to it. But I will I will say that. From my perspective, real Americans respect our institutions. Real Americans respect the rule of law. Real Americans, you know, respect the results of elections. That is what America America is is, is the constitution and our in our system of government and our system of va- are the values that we have. 
they are acting contrary to that. To me, that is completely un-American. Absolutely. Right. Yep. They, they, what was, what's the line by Grant? We now have two parties. We have traitors and patriots. And right now, those are not the Republicans. Yeah, it is definitely, a, to me, authoritarian versus people who are Democrats. In other words, do you really, are you a Democrat? I don't mean that by Democrat versus Republican. I mean, do you believe in democracy or do you believe in authoritarianism? Because that, that's really where we're going with this. That's where we're going with this. All, all right. I better bring in my guest because you and I are too fired up, uh, Betty. Uh, so let me, uh, let me now uh, introduce our guest, uh, Joyce Vance. Uh, many of you know Joyce because she's on MSNBC all the time. She's an NBC legal analyst. Uh, but before that, uh, she was the United States attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Uh, and she is a longtime former federal prosecutor and somebody who I think has such wise views and, and interesting things to say uh, about a variety of legal topics and particularly about the one we're about to discuss. Welcome back to the podcast, Joyce. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a great way to start off the new year. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, it, it, being with you is a great way to start off the new year. But I have to say, I was hoping that 2021 was going to be less eventful. Uh, and of course, uh, that did not happen. It, it certainly feels a lot like 2020. Uh, I, I don't know, were you as, as disappointed and shocked by the news as I was? You know, 2021 is already feeling like the longest year ever. Like <laughs> like you, I had hoped that we would maybe move on to more trivial things. But um, obviously, we're going to be talking a lot about democracy and the balance. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And, you know, I would like to say it's surprising that Trump acted this way. And, of course, it's not. But it, it is disturbing. And, you know, to me, it, one the, the question on my mind is, you know, what would he— not do in order to change these results? I mean, is there any limit to what he's willing to do, he would be willing to do to remain in power? That, I think, is the most frightening thing that emerges from this this phone call. And I listened to the tape. I didn't read the transcript. I wanted to hear the words out of his own mouth. And he's obviously um, a very damaged, very broken person who doesn't have a good grip on reality, and, and he still holds on to the White House and the reins of power for another couple of weeks. And I think the question we have to be asking is, what wouldn't he do? Will he ultimately try to burn the whole building down to save himself? Um, that, that's the risk we face. Yeah, it, it's it's such a it's such a disturbing and profound question. Uh, and I I uh, really shudder to think what what the consequences are going to be for our country. Um, I let, let me ask you, Joyce. You you said that you listened to the entire uh, recording. You know what? What are your takeaways? As, you know, as somebody who I think that's an interesting way of approaching it because I I'll have to admit I read the transcript. Uh, it's not it's not quite the same. I did listen to parts of the recording, but I didn't listen to the entire recording straight through. It's a pretty remarkable tape. I mean, the president repeats a lot of just ridiculous commentary. Um, you know, one of the things that he caught that he said that really caught my attention because I live in Alabama was he said, well, everyone knows I couldn't have lost in Georgia because I won in Alabama. <laughs> and that is really characteristic of the level of engagement he had with the facts. There, there's no effort to say, 
I'd like to get a good count on this election. We think that there are some problems. Here's our evidence, you know, leaving aside the fact that they've already done hand recounts in Georgia. Could, could you do it again? No, this is a president, and what he knows is the numbers. He knows that he lost by 11,779 uh, votes, and so he's essentially begging please, can't you just find me 11,780 votes so that I can win? And he sort of throws himself on their mercy and says, geez, fellas, you know, essentially it's it's a mob boss saying, I need you to get me across the finish line. Yeah, it's an interesting analogy I, I will uh, to a mob boss. I will say at times it seemed to me like he was threatening. At times he was begging, at times cajoling. You know, he, was, he went from mode to mode in terms of what he – what method he was trying to do to persuade them to help him you know you know he definitely did not spell things out and one one takeaway i had and i'm curious if you had the same reaction is that you know if if the secretary of state wanted to he could have asked questions uh or his attorney could have asked questions to try to i wouldn't say set trump up but to sort of tease out exactly what it is trump wanted and in what way and it was it seemed to me that he was really not trying in any way whatsoever to create any issues for for the for the president. He was really just, you know, playing this as straight as he possibly could. Yeah, you could tell by the end that they really just wanted to get off the call early on. They had made a couple of um, efforts to clarify facts. And the president really wasn't there to listen. He was there to talk. So he would run over them. And by the end, they would sort of start to say something, and then they would just stop. And you have this visual of them uh, sitting there telling each other, you know, sort of motioning with their hands, let's just let it go. Let's just not take anything else up here. But, you know, to your point that there wasn't um, any sort of direct threat, I thought it was really fairly classic extortion. It felt a lot to me like cases, um, you, you know, with sort of like a big drug kingpin who wanted to take somebody out. And, and there's never the, you know, you need to go and kill this person. It's someone needs to take care of this situation. And so, you know, you have Trump telling the secretary of state in Georgia, well, if I don't get the count that I want, it's going to be costly in a lot of different ways. And he clearly threatens him with some form of a criminal prosecution. You know, you know that you're committing a crime and that's risky for you. And then there's also the larger context, because we can't divorce the call from the context. There's this context of Trump using his platform and his megaphone to damage Republicans' careers to make sure that they get primaried or for whatever reason they have no further success. And, of course, the entire reason that this secretary of state has of state has been put out with the president is because of his failure to tamp down on violence directed against election officials. So all of that gets wrapped up here and and becomes part of what could potentially be. Obviously, I don't prejudge any sort of a criminal case that we'd need investigation, but what could amount to extortion? You know, that's, uh, I, I agree with you, by the way, Joyce. I do think that when you look at all this in context, of course, the Georgia Secretary of State has also said in the past that he had, you know, faced threats and other election officials in Georgia had said the same. Uh, I think if this was a different context in which, you know, for example, you use the example, let's say a drug kingpin or something. If this was a drug case 
and you had a similar conversation and similar context, I could see a potential extortion charge. I know that you know, Andrew Weissman, for example, suggested that he thought that there that this looked a lot like an extortion charge. I'm curious, what do you what do you think would be the challenge uh, to bringing an extortion charge? Just to look at the flip side of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the president's defense is it wasn't willful. I I truly believed that I had won the election. I truly believed that there had been fraud. I I just want there to be, you know, a, a good count on this election. And, of course, that would have been easier for him to make out if that was what he had asked for. Instead, he asked for the precise number of votes um, that he believes he needs to take the Georgia election. And in context, that's pretty frightening because even if he wins Georgia, Georgia's 16 electoral votes don't put him over the top. So it makes you wonder what else he's been up to. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Joyce, um, because – we we know that Trump has had conversations of a similar type in other contexts. Let's say the Ukraine call, for example, and allegedly Bolton claims he's had conversations with other world leaders along similar lines, trying to get help for himself in the election. Um, you can imagine what he's been saying to officials in Nevada or Pennsylvania or, or Michigan, um, because he, I think he famously had those Michigan legislators fly out, for example. I, I um. I uh, I will say, you know, it's interesting you raise the point of what he really believes. I think the way I have been putting it when I've been asked is that the met, you know Trump's mental state is very complicated. Uh, it's really when you li- when you when you read the transcript as you know I did and listen to portions of the tape. I really he was all sort of all over the place, and at times he was repeating these conspiracy theories you know, in such a way that made it sound as if he believed his own BS, so to speak. Uh, Maybe he's been watching too much Newsmax. He convinces himself of his own nonsense. And I think that would have to be his defense, that he has some genuine belief that he won the landslide, even though it is, of course, completely counterfactual and there's no evidence to support it and so on. But he's been surrounded by sycophants who repeat these lies and enable him and so forth. But I, you know, I have to say it's a bizarre defense. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, I think that's the key point. That's why there needs to be a real investigation done by professionals. Was he having conversations with people around him where he acknowledged he knew that the voter fraud myth was was just that a hoax, but he was trying to pursue it, or or was he really bought in? That's really an important point that there needs to be full investigation on. Yeah, I got to say, Joyce, you've been mentioning that online, the, the need for a full investigation. And I have really that was one reason why I was really excited to have you on, because I thought I have great respect for that. I think that's exactly the right attitude that we should have. The right response to this, in my opinion, is that, you know, not just, you know, I know some people might think, oh, these people would never testify. But what if they have emails where they discuss their conversations with Trump? What if there are text messages and so forth? You know, we could establish, for example, you know, with conversations, you know, what their understanding was of Trump's state of mind. I think that would be highly relevant and would really get to the bottom of this. And I have to say, I I guess my view on it, Joyce, is that regardless of whether this resulted in a criminal charge or not, I think the American people have a right to know what the heck he's been doing uh, over the past X number of weeks uh, around this country trying to overturn, you know, overturn election results. I think that's right. You know, 
people need to know the truth. And something that Trump has gone to great lengths to do is to prevent investigation, to prevent the truth from coming out, to prevent people from answering questions. So there's a role here for, for DOJ, maybe for state prosecutors in Georgia, but certainly a role for Congress um, to play in helping the American people understand the damage, the legacy, the problems, and what we need to take steps to prevent reoccurrence of. Yeah. I, I You know, there have been some legislators. I know my uh, senator, uh, Dick Durbin, called for a criminal investigation. And I do think this is not something we should be moving on from because there has certainly been some discussion about that. In other words, you know, where people have discussed impeachment, people have discussed uh, uh, criminal investigations, and it's like, well, he's going to be out of office soon. I do think that that this sort of event is is going to be a historical moment that we look back to for decades. Uh, we, we're going to look back on this moment in American history. If all that happens here is a Georgia state investigation, I think that will be very tarnishing for DOJ, that they did not step up and play a role that they should have played in such a serious instance where a president – I mean, you know, if this was a mayor or a governor or a senator – you as a, as a U.S. attorney would have been sending out subpoenas for grand jury last night to talk to witnesses and gathering evidence. And the idea that the president somehow gets passed because he's on the way out the door seems irresponsible to me. There just has to be a full and appropriate investigation. Yeah, I agree. I think if this if, you know, the example I had used is if our mayor in Chicago had had called up the secretary of state in Illinois and said, look, I lost reelection, but I need you to find X number of votes. I, everyone would want to investigate that. I mean, it's so bizarre uh, on its face. It yeah. just demer- merits an investigation. Absolutely. One, you know, of course, one thing that I thought was very interesting is Trump's allies really didn't defend the content of the call as much as they attacked um, the the Secretary of State for recording it. And I know we have a question from our listeners regarding that. Uh, Patty, do you, can you uh, tell us that? Absolutely. I mean, look, we've been wanting receipts for a while. I, and, and we've talked a lot about, you know, accountability. Uh, somebody posted, Georgia's wiretapping law is one-party consent law. Georgia makes it a crime to secretly record a phone call or in-person conversation originating any private place unless one party to the conversation consents. So does this essentially mean the recording was legal? Does Trump have a case against the secretary of state for the recording? It was absolutely a legal call. Georgia is a one-party consent state. That means that if either party consents to taping a phone call, it can be done. But when you think about it, this call could actually be sort of an official record that's required to be recorded under Georgia law. I'm certainly not an expert, but it would seem to me that this would be an official communication that could be properly recorded. And of course, as we've just heard in this pretty searing press conference, uh, the tape was only released because the president was affirmatively mischaracterizing the call. And the folks in Georgia believed that people were entitled to the truth. Yeah. You know, one interesting backstory that we heard today was that, one reason why they decided to record the call is that Lindsey Graham had had a call with them in the past in which uh, he was asking them essentially to toss out lawful ballots and then disputed that later. And they felt like they that 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 gave them the sense that they needed the, a record here of this call, which I think in, in retrospect appears very wise. Yes, it does. One one uh, interesting character who was on this call was uh, the lawyer who was appeared to be representing the president, 
uh, partner at a large law firm. Uh, now it appears that her law firm was not aware of her representation or involvement in this matter. Uh, she doesn't say a lot on the call. Uh, he seems to get, re- you know, uh, Trump is stepping over her all the time. But I, I you know, yeah, constantly, it, constantly. Right. Uh, and, I, and I wonder if her being female has a part to play in that, although he didn't seem to let anybody get much of a word in. Uh, I, I, you know, it, people have asked a lot about her role. I have to say it does seem problematic to me because regardless of what you think Trump believes or doesn't believe, on its face, this looks a lot like fraud. And as a lawyer, just to sort of be passively uh, observing this and not trying to put the brakes on this or say anything or intervene in any way, I, I find that very problematic. I'm curious to see what her role is. Early on in the call, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, makes this interesting reference just in passing that she's one of the lawyers um, on this case. And then he clarifies and says but she's not the lawyer of record, meaning she's not the lawyer who signed the pleadings in court. Um, And so I went searching to find out what case they were talking about, because the context that Meadows tries to give this entire conversation is that it's about settling a lawsuit, and and they want to see records. And there's a lot of talk from the lawyers about, well, Georgia, you haven't given us records that only you have access to. The response from Georgia is, we've given you what we can, but state law prohibits disclosure of a lot of other things, so we can't give you that. And there's this, you know, I think really sort of ominous conversation about, well, can't you deputize our lawyers so that they can see your data? Almost like, can't we play on the same team here and, and you know, run our, our way around Georgia law? And and so ultimately at the end, Meadows says, okay, well, I'm glad we've agreed, you know, we can see your documents. And the Georgia folks say, you know, hold up, that's not the agreement here, but we'll sit down with you and talk about your concerns and explain to you what we've done and how we've established that they're not true in the context of our court proceedings. Um, And so there's this, like, you know, this effort to to make it sound like they're settling a case. So I go looking to find the case, and I can't find anything in active uh, litigation in Georgia that could be this case. And then I see uh, a tweet last night from Mark Elias, who is, of course, the great guru of, of all election litigation, um, in this post-election scenario, and he actually clarifies the point. He says, there is no active case. If there's a case I would have known, I would be counsel of records, so it would have been important for me to be uh, on the call, and there is nothing going on. So I find it real fishy that a lawyer, to your point, is involved in this sort of a setup, this sort of an effort to give a gloss of legitimacy to the reason for the phone call and the, the effort to get the data that they want. And, and that context, I think, is something that folks have not really discussed. There's no need to set it all up to do something so devious if what you're doing is on the up and up. They were really trying to put some lipstick on the pig here. Wow, that's an excellent point, Joyce, that I hadn't fully teased out in my head as well. I think that's an excellent, excellent point. You're right about that. You know, I will say a New York Times reporter also confirmed that there was no litigation that this would be referring to either. Uh, And I I found her role to be interesting because, as I said, she's a partner at a large law firm, a respected law firm. His office is all over the place. And I I suspect, I could be wrong, that that Trump was not actually a client, that she didn't have an engagement letter, 
that her law firm had not signed on to this representation. And so, you know, I don't know what she thought she was doing in this circumstance, but I suspect that, you know, she she was not acting the way she ordinarily would be acting as a lawyer in this scenario. So what was she doing and what was her role there? You know, I find that very interesting. Yeah, she's a, a member of this longtime cabal of folks like Hans von Sparkowski who uh, believe in voter fraud and who search for voter fraud and, and you know, folks who, uh, as you say, live in a counterfactual world where the evidence doesn't matter when it comes to voter fraud. Yeah, in, indeed. I, there was a, a tape that came out uh, today that I I listened a little bit to, which is of her giving a class on how to gerrymander to, you know, Republicans yeah. or whatever, which is just, you know, but it gives you a sense of the space, I guess, in which she inhabits uh, the sort of thing that I think for most of us, regardless of whether the Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional or not, uh, gerrymandering is not uh, something that uh, that most of us regard as a positive thing. Let's just put it that way. It seems like a kind of a dirty tricks uh, sort of uh, uh, endeavor. As far as I'm concerned, um, you know what we do have another question from listeners, uh, Patty. Oh, we have so many questions from, from listeners. Uh, you know, the, a lot of this obviously has to do with investigating the content of the call. Uh, one listener asks, "Is there something for which Donald can be criminally charged in Georgia for after he leaves office?" Well, there is. Georgia has a solicitation statute. That's what lawyers call an inchoate crime. It means you don't have to actually get all the way to the end of your criminal shenanigans. Just making the request in Georgia of someone to engage in election fraud subjects you to prosecution for for a felony. So it's a serious crime. Um, and that, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of investigating fully before you make a prosecutive decision. This call is um, pretty good evidence of an effort to get someone to uh, rejigger the numbers so you could win. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I it would certainly be a good starting point for an investigation. And I, in what I think the rest of the investigation would look like would be interviews of everyone involved uh, regarding uh, what they understood to be happening on the call, interviewing people who are around Trump and getting their records and emails and texts and other things, communications that might reveal Trump's state of mind, which would be the issue here. And then I think, you know, as you really pointed out earlier, Joyce, his, the context matters so much. So really, I think that would really open up the investigation to look at his activities since the election, what he's been doing with other potential, you know, state legislators, state officials, uh, you know, his his other lies that he's been telling and other conversations to develop, a, I think, a course of conduct that would ex, that would put into context and help explain his state of mind regarding this particular uh, uh, call, this particular ask. Absolutely. I mean, I would subpoena Bill Barr, who is no longer the attorney general and who does not have a lawyer client relationship with the president of the United States. And I would want to know if Barr had conversations with the president about this. You know, ditto for uh, Ivanka and Jared, who I think um, get subpoenas if if I'm the prosecutor doing this. I, I want to know what conversations he's had with folks. Yeah. And just so everyone understands, the conversations that Trump had that reveal a state of mind would be admissible against him. Uh, there would not be hearsay because the, he would be the defendant in the suit. So there's an exception to the hearsay rules when the, the opponent 
In other words, here in this case, if the prosecution was the state of Georgia or the United States of America, the opponent would be Trump. So his statements would, would be used against him. And, you know, one thing that, that people have mentioned, and I did discuss a little bit, is the, you know, what about all of these other, his conduct, couldn't you kind of roll in all of his conduct that he's done, you know, the Ukraine call, other types of calls in which he he has these sort of deals, drug deal sort of conversations, to use the Bolton term. And, and the answer is, you know, those conversations would not come in to kind of show a, a propensity to commit these types of offenses. Um but I think where we're the, the distinction between you know so in other words in this in this country you can't you know charge somebody with one crime and then bring in the other ninety nine times they did it to show that they must have done it again here, but I do think the course of conduct for example particularly over these weeks would be used not not uh, for purposes of saying oh he's done other bad things but really to show what his state of mind was here in other words that those prior conversations show what his state of mind was in this particular call. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The federal rules of evidence call this 401B evidence, right? Evidence of other crimes. And you cannot put that evidence uh, in at trial to prove, as you say, a propensity to commit similar crimes. What you can do is use it to prove motive, opportunity, intent, common plan or scheme. And one of the things I keep thinking about is the way Michael Cohen has described Trump's operation. And this is so consistent with what Cohen has said about how Trump consistently operated in the space when he was trying to get someone to do his his bidding. And, and so I do think you would have to go carefully through each instance and think specifically about why it could come into evidence. But there's a lot of pattern evidence here that would be relevant. And particularly when you think about motive, Trump is so driven as his time in the White House comes to an end to avoid future prosecution that I think that may end up being an overarching theme here. Yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting. We have certainly heard reports about that concern. Uh, uh, Patty, uh, you had a question about uh, the investigation and the realism of the investigation. Well, obviously, there are many people who are calling for an investigation, including Senator Durbin, who says he wants the phone call investigated. But how realistic is that with so few days left until the 20th and anything else that has to be done in the meantime? Well, I don't think an investigation hinges on how long Trump stays in office for, right? I mean, that the timing cuts against if he wants to try to overturn the election, that's something that would have to happen quickly. An investigation into his conduct is limited only by the presumably five-year statute of limitations um, that the government would have to uh, bring any charges within. That's exactly right. As, it, as usual, I would agree with, with what Joyce has to say. We've got to stop agreeing so much. All we do is agree. We're going to have to find something to disagree on one day. We will. I, on this one, I, I, you're <laughs> absolutely right, though. I think that the investigation is going to take some time. And, the, you know, that's that's fine. Time is on the investigator side. And I would do this the right way. I don't think there should be a rush uh, here. And, you know, that brings to another that brings me to kind of a related point where there I don't know what your reaction is going to be about it. But, you know, there's been some suggestion. I know Asha Ringapa, uh, who's a frequent uh, frequent guest in the podcast, recent guest you know, was saying that we should have uh, we should have impeachment proceedings to get him out of office a few days earlier, a couple or a week or two early, you know, because this is an impeachable offense. I'm curious what your reaction is to that suggestion. 
I think it is an impeachable offense. It's an abuse of power. The question that I have around impeachment is more of a pragmatic one. Um, there's very limited time. There is appears to be very limited appetite to do this. Even Hakeem Jeffries indicated this morning he just was ready to get Trump out of office and be done with it. So I think as a practical um, matter, even though there may be good reasons, including barring him from future time in office, uh, impeachment will not happen. And, and that's probably the best answer I have to that question. Yeah, I I I have to agree with you again. I I think it's an interesting contrast to the criminal investigation point. In other words, that's why I raised it here is that within a criminal investigation, you have the time to figure out what happened. And one way or the other, I think uh, we should get to the bottom of this. But uh, regarding impeachment, if you don't get it done uh, before he leaves office, there's nothing to impeach anymore. We don't have much time left. We, you know, uh, the January 20th is around the corner. And realistically, if House, uh, if the House got this over to the Senate a week before Trump is going to leave office anyways, it's just really hard for me to imagine McConnell trying to rush this through and move on it. Uh, it would just be simpler to just hold uh, sit on it for a week and, and until it becomes moot. So I just I, I don't see anything. happening. Yeah. As a practical matter. McConnell is not going to rush an impeachment trial through. Yeah, I don't. I definitely don't think that that happens. I think what, what's bothering people, Joyce, is that you know the, people have been gotten sick of feeling that Trump gets away with everything. Trump can do whatever he wants; he gets away with it. There doesn't seem to be consequences, and I think it's frustrating for people. I will say though, he is he will have a consequence on January 20th where he when he vacates the the White House it won't be a, it will be full a full consequence for everything he has done but it will be a consequence and it is it is clearly painful to him as was evident on the on the phone call it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see how Joe Biden um how his attorney general handles this situation it's very fraught a lot of difficulty in deciding, you know, when uh, investigating a former president is a slippery slope to political prosecutions and when it's absolutely warranted based on the facts. There are going to be some very interesting legal issues for us to follow in the coming months. I, I agree with that. I think, you know, it is the sort of thing that sh should almost never be considered, really, you know, having an incoming presidential administration prosecute the outgo or, you know the president of the outgoing administration but with in Trump is created such a circumstance where he's you know committed crimes in plain view that are readily provable that you can literally read the Mueller report and there's the evidence right there all laid out before you and uh you know he's thumbed his nose at uh and shown no remorse whatsoever it's a very, very difficult, uh, very difficult situation and one which I think no, it's safe to say no matter how the Biden administration handles the matter, it's going to be criticized. I think that's right. There'll be criticism from both the left and the right. Yeah, I think I think so as well. I, I one thing that I I do find interesting here is. One thing that I, you know, we we've started to see is a little bit of pushback from some conservatives, as you know, regarding the efforts that not only what happened in the phone call, but also what Trump is trying to do on January sixth. This effort to, you know, pushing, you know, various Republicans to try to object to the electoral college results. 
it, it you know it seems to me you know like we may be witnessing a whether it's a fissure or a change or a break in the Republican party I'm not sure what to make of the aftermath of of all of this I mean, one thing that I wonder uh Joyce has been really bothering me for some time is are we seeing a blip here with Trump or is this you know, a torch that's going to be carried by the next uh, would-be authoritarian who might be just smarter and more able of pulling this stuff off. Well, I think that's the risk, right? This whole notion that we've been saved only because the Trump administration has been so incredibly incompetent as they've gone about these things. And Trump has all too often, I mean, literally a lot of what we know, a lot of the problems that he's have are self-inflicted wounds because he can't keep his mouth or his Twitter feed quiet. Uh, and so someone who was smart and devious and crafty, whether a Democrat or Republican, might be able to drive a truck through some of these fissures that Trump has opened up in democracy. Yeah, I, I have to say this, this rush by people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who are intelligent people um, who know better. I mean, they really know, you know, uh, Ted Cruz, I think, went to Harvard Law School. Josh Hawley went to Yale. They're very intelligent human beings who know and understand how our constitution works, it seems to me like there's an, there's an, a desire to inherit uh, the Trump base, but also I think to inherit his rhetoric, his legacy, and try to carry, carry that forward in some manner. And it's, it's scary to me to think of what, what that could look like. I agree. I think that's one of the risks people will have to guard against. One, I know, uh, Patty, there was a question about the cost uh, to the United States uh, for this, uh, you know, for for our reaction to this. Well, and I think I think you both addressed it in that sort of the fracturing of democracy is just such a great way to put it. Uh, Somebody asks, what may be the cost to the U.S. if they don't react on this phone call, if he doesn't get impeached for this? Or, you know, basically isn't the full weight of the law behind an investigation. What signals are sent to politicians, administration officials, voters, foreign governments? I mean, it's a lot here. It's really a problem. And and I have heard historians make the argument that we're where we are because there was no real accountability for Nixon, that the Bush, um, the the terror memo uh, went unprosecuted and that there's this sort of collective effort um, to try to be restrained and let the country move on at the end of an administration and not become the kind of country where political prosecutions are the norm. And that's, you know, that's really something that ultimately may have damaged us in a few ways. Yeah, it's an interesting, that's an interesting insight. Uh, Joyce, I would say also that I think part of the cost here is not just what the impact it has on future administrations, but I, I think on other public officials. I think that, you know, I worry that other public officials are going to learn from this playbook. Perhaps only Trump or only the president can get away with all this. I think that remains to be seen. But I, I think, you know, if the Justice Department is weighing the factors that you usually weigh in terms of, you know, whether or not to move forward with the prosecution, one factor that I would be thinking about is is more general deterrence to public officials so that public officials are aware that if you're going to abuse your office to try to remain in office unlawfully or, you know, in other circumstances to try to obstruct an investigation of yourself, for example, that there will be consequences that you that you will be taken to account. I think that 
you know, that that is similar to what you were saying uh, a moment ago, which is that the lack of consequences does have an impact. I think that's right. Um, that notion of, of deterrence of public officials in general from engaging in corruption is something that's really suffered under a series of Supreme Court decisions that have imposed greater burdens on prosecutors. And we've seen people like Rod Blagojevich, who on appeal, for instance, a case you probably know a lot more about than I do, <laughs> um, but who on appeal, some of his counts of conviction were reversed because conduct was viewed as political log rolling and not as corruption. And so I think generally we've lived in an environment of greater permissiveness for political conduct. And it may be that that balance has gone too far and there aren't enough checks on outright corruption. Yeah, there has been a movement by the Supreme Court to constrain uh, political corruption prosecutions. And I will say, I mean, one one other point I would just make about uh, Rod Blagojevich is that you know, he is somebody who, particularly after his pardon or his commutation, I should say, by Trump, you know, he has been going around and parroting the Trump lines about how he was, in, you know, the victim of a political prosecution and so forth, which is absolutely false. I'll say this uh, as somebody yeah. who is he'll be he'll be a Republican in the 2024 election cycle. Sure enough. Oh, without a doubt, he's already been raising money for them. And I will just say that, you know, he you know, th- this is an example of why. You know, this these actions by Trump have an impact that goes beyond federal politics, because in my state, we really rely on the federal government to clean up corruption and federal prosecutors to be the sort of neutral party and honest players who are coming in to, you know, investigate and often prosecute and imprison politicians in both parties who are engaging in corruption. So it's really a loss for all of us when we lose the the faith in the rule of law and our institutions and so forth. Yeah, I, I mean, this is really a serious problem that reaches far into our system because it's difficult for state prosecutors to attack corruption in their own system. And so the feds really are the key players in this game. None of us wants to live in a country where justice is for sale, where votes are for sale, where corruption becomes um, the coin of the realm for our politicians. And I think that there'll need to be a very deliberate thought process, hopefully with, you know, maybe a, a group of highly respected bipartisan experts who can reset this balance. It certainly needs to be reset. Yeah, I think another balance that really needs to be reset is this. I worry about this this uh, assumption nowadays that when you or that, that is being set by this election, that after you the election, you go to court and make a bunch of frivolous challenges, and that somehow the courts are supposed to decide the election one way or the other. I think that's a very dangerous um, and and harmful for the country uh, consequence of what Trump has done. That there's this, uh, there seems to be that th- there's this, you know, recognition. There's this this uh, concession that sure you can go to court and you have a right to do that. I mean, I don't think that when you when you're bringing frivolous suits as he has that that's something that uh, really should be done in a democracy. It's really a terrible thing to see, to watch the White House suffer loss after loss, 60 losses in court, not a single court in the country that gave any credibility to the arguments that they were making. And we know that 
the president didn't really care very much about the lawsuits either. They were just a vehicle for him because when it became clear he wasn't going to win in court, you know, he's just moved on and now he's trying to deal directly with state officials. It's all just a means to an end for him, and it's so very distasteful and, and inappropriate. Yeah, it's, it's really emblematic of the um, abuse of the court system. In other words, you know, there are there are some rules that are not enforced as much as they should be about the use of litigation, uh, you know, in an abusive way, abusing the court system. And I think that if you are filing a lawsuit merely to create the appearance of a legal dispute when you know that there's no genuine um, relief that you will be able to obtain that in, in in my view is is about as clear of an abuse of the court system as you can get you know i think that's right and we've lived through four years where the reputation and dignity of the courts have really suffered in no little part because of this president's attack on the courts and the american people have watched justice be delayed and have watched this president act as though he's above the law so their confidence is really at a low ebb it will be critical to restore that. It's going to be tough for a lot of people to believe that we should give the justice system the time and space that it needs to operate, because they've seen so many times in the last four years when the system hasn't produced the kind of results it should have produced. So this is a real troubling moment that we're at, and I think it's incumbent upon people like us to do two things, both to explain to our communities how the system could work should work and why people should let it work, but at the same time to be really vigilant about holding this new administration accountable and making sure that it does have transparent processes where transparency is appropriate uh, and that we are restoring a rule of law situation, not just uh, letting ourselves settle down into the sort of the sludge that's developed in this area. You know, I think that's that's a very important point, Joyce. In, in other words, you know, a lot of people ask, well, kind of how do we move forward? And, you know, part of what we need to do as citizens is, as you say, hold the next administration accountable. And really, I think there's a lot of work to be done affirmatively because the system that we had is not perfect. There are reforms that are needed. And unfortunately, it, we've got to focus on basic repairs and getting the system working and getting faith restored to the system that we have uh, without losing sight of the reforms that are needed. Absolutely. Wow. Well, Joyce, this has been a fantastic conversation. I feel I uh, I have to say I wish it was under happier circumstances. We always seem to be discussing <laughs> uh, negative things, uh, but hopefully we're going to have after January 20th, perhaps we'll be able to have a more a more positive conversation. Um, but it has been an absolute joy to speak with you, and I hope you and your family are safe and doing well. Thank you. We are. I, I wish the same to both of you. And, and I hope that we can make a date for later in 2021 to have a lighthearted conversation about some of the more frivolous aspects of the law. <laughs> that would be wonderful. I feel like we deserve that. Amen to that. That sounds great. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? 
Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say, so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. 